First of all there came Chaos, and after him came Gaia of the broad breast, to be the unshakable foundation of all the immortals who keep the crests of snowy Olympus. But Gaia's firstborn was one who matched her every dimension, Uranos, the starry sky, to cover her all over, to be an unshakable standing place for the blessed immortals. From the Theogony by Hesiod. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton and I write and produce the episodes of this podcast. This is the fourth episode in the second series of the podcast. The title of this series is The Greek Sun. Today's episode will cover Greek mythology, specifically focusing on the creation of the world and the procession of the gods, along with some descriptions of their personalities and their domains in the life of the average ancient Greek. There will be at least two episodes that focus exclusively on mythology before we proceed any further with Greek history. Before I get on with the mythology of ancient Greece, I am excited to tell you about a new book available on Amazon right now. It's called The Rape of Persephone. Written by Monica Brillhart, this book is a provocative journey into the darkest couple in mythology. The Rape of Persephone tells the story of Cori, the child of a priestess and king, destined for a life in the priesthood. When a foolish runaway attempt is foiled by a quake that demolishes the land, 16-year-old Cory lands in the custody of the notorious ruler Hades. If you know anything about Greek mythology already, you may recognize this tale. But Brillhart's book explores more than just the meaning behind the story of Hades and Persephone. She weaves together the myths and history of the Aegean Sea into what one critic has already called a brilliant, gritty, wanton, and undeniably intoxicating portrayal of the times. The Rape of Persephone by Monica Brillhart is available everywhere in hardcover and on all ebook platforms. I strongly recommend it, especially if you are interested not just in the mythology of ancient Greece, but also in the mysterious possibilities behind their origins, some of which I have already alluded to in this podcast. Now, before beginning in earnest, I also want to remind listeners, especially those that find me through Spotify or Amazon Music or some other source, to visit the website at western-traditions.org. That is western-traditions.org. I have begun begun adding transcripts to the website, and in addition to the latest source lists, I have provided some tips for great books to read to supplement these podcasts and to deepen your understanding of themes in ancient Greece. While you're there, please look around at the growing site, leave a comment, look at the episodes, and if you can, contribute to the support of the podcast through PayPal or Patreon. Now, we've got a lot of material to cover, so let's get on with Greek mythology. As I did with the Sumerian and the Hebrew mythologies, I shall begin this discovery of Greek mythology with the creation myth. The quote with which I open this episode is from Hesiod's Theogony, a work composed probably sometime during the Dark Ages of Greece, the centuries immediately after the fall of Mycenae, maybe in the 8th or 9th century BC. This book is the source of much, though not all, that we know about the earliest Greek religious beliefs. In the ancient Greek conception, the universe began in chaos, and order arose out of chaos. Now, the Hebrew creation story, the cosmogony described in chapter one of the book of Genesis anyway, is a reflection, a permutation, if you will, of the Sumerian story of creation. While I earlier distinguished those two Semitic versions of creation, Hebrew and Sumerian, they did have this in common, that the world as we know it is an orderly place, born out of a primordial chaos. The Hebrew story, though, is notably different in more than one way. There is, for instance, just one God in that accounting of creation, one Lord who oversees the unfolding of the world as if it were something already prepared beforehand, all proceeding according to his plan. The Greek story of creation is also distinct from the Sumerian story, but there are a number of interesting commonalities. I have remarked before on the intriguing similarities between the names of the earliest gods of the Mesopotamians and the Greeks. 
It is fascinating to see that the earth and sky among the Sumerians were known as Ki and Anu, and among the Greeks they were named Gaia and Uranus. That sound, Anu, appears in both names for the sky, and there is also a clear linguistic relationship between Ki and Gaia, which has alternate pronunciations as Gaia or even Gia. Regardless, both names begin with what is called a velar plosive. This is a class of consonant sound, a type of sound produced by the human voice using the back of the throat. K and G are the only members of this class. Now, this is not a linguistic podcast, so I will stop there before I head down another rabbit hole, but this seems to suggest that these names have an intertwined history that somewhere deep in the human past, maybe before the appearance of distinct ethnicities such as Semitic, Hamitic, Indo-European, and so on, long ago, very long ago, in Neolithic or even earlier times, the Earth was perhaps already known by early modern humans as having some name beginning with this hard sound, this velar plosive, and the sky was always referenced by something sounding like Anu. Now, returning to the Greeks, chaos actually comes first, before Earth and sky, and chaos is fertile. As with all of Greek myth, there is something philosophical here, a statement buried in the story. The fertility, the creativity of chaos. Indeed, chaos is infinitely productive because the world comes out of it, and even the gods who arise and generate their own offspring do so only after emerging from chaos themselves. So even their fertility is a result of the primordial chaos out of which all things appear, and to which all owe their existence. Chaos is the background against which even the mightiest of the gods, the great Zeus, is merely a painted figure. Gesture menacingly all he may, he is merely an emanation arising out of an infinitely deep foundation of primeval chaos. But back to the procession of the gods. First of the gods, among the Greeks, as among nearly all other ancient cultures, are earth and sky. To be very strict, earth is first, and there are a handful of other gods, or divine figures anyway, that are born from her. Among them, Eros, the god of love, and Tartarus, the god of the underworld. That is, at least according to Hesiod. But with many of these so-called gods, it may not be accurate to say, for instance, that Eros is the god of love, rather that he is love itself, perhaps. Just as Tartarus is not so much the god of the underworld, properly speaking, that would later be Hades, the brother of Zeus, but rather Tartarus is the underworld. Or maybe Eros is the spirit of love rather than its god, and Tartarus may be the doom of the underworld that one senses rather than its overlord. Now in the next series on the Romans, which I will hopefully begin sometime in 2024, I will spend some time on the Roman gods. And there is a tendency to view the Roman gods as merely Romanized versions of the Greek gods, the, the same entities with different names, uh, Minerva instead of Athena, Jupiter instead of Zeus, Neptune instead of Poseidon, and so on. But one of the points that I will make then in that series is that the original Indo-European religious ideas that the Romans brought with them into Italy, their concepts of the gods, they were very impersonal. They very much saw the gods as concepts or forces rather than as anthropomorphic figures sitting on top of a mountain. It seems like the earliest Greek gods then, those that they worshipped when they came out of Anatolia or the Balkan Peninsula or along the shores of the Black Sea, or however they got there and into Greece for the first time, it seems like they may have been much more like the earliest Roman gods, forces of nature, emotions, inescapable aspects of reality. Night was a god, love was a god, as was the sea, called Pontus, in Hesiod's Theogony. And he was perhaps not really the god of the sea, he was the sea, or he was the force and spirit of the sea. And of course, none of these gods was predictable. None had a particular aspect on which you could count. This is very important for understanding Greek thought. Now, in the Christian world, as in the Jewish and the Muslim world, God is all good. You can count on him to be right, to be just, to be good, to exemplify the highest virtues. When it appears that he does not do these things in difficult passages of scripture or in the wake of a terrible tragedy, there is a rush to explain, to show how there is really something good underlying it all. Not so among the Greeks. Mother Earth, Gaia, she could be fertile, generous soil that produced a rich harvest and fed your village throughout the year. 
fields thick with grain and groves of olive trees, laden boughs heavy with their life-sustaining produce and generous vineyards of plump grapes nourished by clay and rain. But she could also be cruel and heartless, her arid soil withholding life. She might open up at any moment during an earthquake and consume a whole village. Her son, the sea, was similar, similarly equivocal, nurturing schools of fish and hordes of other delicious sea life, but also bringing terrible storms and the occasional unexpected village-destroying tsunami. And love? Hesiod actually names Eros among the gods before he names these others. The passage with which I open this episode is actually an abridgment of the original, which I made in order to focus on the earth and the sky. But the list of the gods given in Hesiod actually mentions several others before Uranus the sky. Besides being the handsomest of all the gods and the second mentioned after Gaia, Hesiod actually portrays Eros, love that is, very powerfully, as one who, in all gods, in all human beings, overpowers the intelligence. Love even exerting its influence over the most powerful of the divine beings, skewering their plans and unsettling their hearts with the torments and passions of love. So the Greeks, from the very beginning, prepared for the worst and hoped for the best when it came to dealing with the divine. The gods were not fundamentally good, not eager to provide the best for their children on earth. No, they were forces seeking no particular alliance with anyone. They were to be placated, bribed, staved off, and even then only temporarily. If Zeus brought rain and gentle winds one year that produced an ample harvest, you could not count on his generosity the following year. Once again, he would have to be bribed with religious ritual and sacrifice and libations, and there was always the fear that this would not be enough, that he would find some reason to begrudge you your safety and bring disaster into your life once again. Now, for sure there are elements of this uncertainty in all religions. The Jewish sacrifices at the temple and the prayers of intercession in Christian churches, for example, both reflect a primordial fear of the gods that endures even after centuries and millennia of acrobatic theology, which has long sought to depict an all-loving God on whom you can always count. But among the ancient Greeks, we see this concept of the fickle gods, the capricious gods. We see it unadorned with theories and speculations about divine love. No, each Greek of whom we read carries in his mind the understanding that the world is a fundamentally untrustworthy place, where not even the gods can be counted on for any purpose, no matter how benevolent your intentions. Now, I bring up the sky as a god among the early Greeks and pair him quickly with earth for two good reasons, even though he actually appears later in the list of the first gods to be produced by Gaia. First, he, that is Uranus, is described by Hesiod as her equal, who would cover Gaia on every side. There is a clear duality expressed here. The gods live in the sky, as men live on earth. On earth, there are mountains and trees and rivers, and in the sky, there is the geography of the stars and the comets and the planets and the moon and the sun, each of them divine in some way and immortal, as men below are mortal and fading. And even the features of the earth change with the seasons or in the wake of disasters, such as floods and fires, while the stars shine night after night without moving or dimming, and the paths of the sun, moon, and stars follow routes that seem eternal and unchanging. Secondly, the sky covers the earth. In this, the Greeks saw a simulacrum of conjugal love, the male sky covering the female earth below in the act of sexual congress. So the pair become father sky and mother earth, though Uranus was technically the son of Gaia in the mythology, and she would, she would produce offspring with others. The Greeks apparently accepted the incest of the gods without tolerating it among themselves, perhaps understanding that the gods were limited in their options since all sprung from the same mother. Jews and Christians would turn a similar blind eye with regard to the book of Genesis, not only with major characters marrying close relatives, such as Abraham with his half-sister, but really all humankind since the sons of Adam and Eve could only have produced their numerous offspring through their own sisters. Now, often, when we learn about Greek mythology in the school setting in the West, we receive an understanding of this procession of the gods that is very linear and very clearly defined. So-and-so begat another being, and this entity was the god of such-and-such such domain. 
So we see Gaia as Earth and Poseidon as Lord of the Sea and Aphrodite in charge of love and Demeter overseeing the harvest and so on. However, there is no primary source in Greek literature that actually paints such a clear picture of the divine world. Take Hesiod's account of the procession of the gods in his Theogony. He states that Gaia, the earth, without any sexual union with another, produced Pontus, the sea. This is after she has already produced Uranus. Now, immediately in our school-trained minds, we have compartmentalized the world unfolding in the text. Now, we have someone in charge of earth and sky and sea, right? But only a few lines later, Gaia lies with her son Uranus and produces Oceanus, who again is identified as the ocean. Are these separate seas, perhaps? Is Pontus over the Mediterranean and Oceanus over the waters that surround Europe and Asia and Africa? It is possible, in an effort to have the lines drawn so neatly, to reason like this, to parse the text of extant Greek literature from ancient times so that everything makes sense according to our modern minds. But these efforts fail. The mythological world of the ancient Greek, his divine surroundings and underpinnings, are as chaotic as his politics. Take the sea, for example. As we read through Greek literature, we will find numerous deities associated with the sea. Now, if Poseidon is truly lord over the waters, what place is there, we might ask in our minds, ever geared toward efficiency, what place is there for Pontus, for Oceanus, or for Proteus, the old man of the sea with whom Menelaus will wrestle in the Odyssey? It doesn't necessarily make sense to us, we who now live thousands of years and oceans away from these, our primal cultural ancestors. And we do best simply to embrace that mystery, to accept that chasm between us, an abyss of misunderstanding with which our Greek forebears would probably be much more comfortable than we are. Now, moving on from the swirling chaos of Greek creation, let us try, because we are who we are, let us try to make some sense of all this. Let us try to assign rules and domains and understand the landscape of Greek mythology, even while we remember, we remember that the ground beneath us is really a fluid sea into which we are meant to sink, which we are meant to absorb rather than understand. While from chaos and from earth there are a variety of divinities produced, the union of Gaia and Uranus does produce a brood of gods with some clearly defined roles and characteristics. These deities are distinguished from the later pantheon of Greek gods on Olympus as titans. These are the gods before the gods. They are remembered by the Greeks of classical times, but worship seems only to be given to the generation of gods who succeeded them, such as Zeus, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, and so on. Now, these titans are 12 in number, according to Hesiod. Already mentioned was Oceanus, with a clear relevance to the sea. His sister and wife was Tethys, that's T-I-T-H-Y-S, goddess of rivers and streams, apparently, but there is little else of note about her in Greek history or mythology, except that she was mother to the thousands of river gods known in Greek myth, as each river had its own divine ruling spirit. Then, among the Titans, there is a being named Coes, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, C-O-E-U-S, about whom there is little more known today. than The name can be translated as meaning intelligence, and he is paired with his sister Phoebe, whose name means wisdom, and with whom he fathered children. More about them later. Anyway, this pairing is suggestive and so distinctly Greek in its concern for the mind in all its facets. Perhaps Coes exemplified rational intelligence, while his sister and wife Phoebe stood for the wise application of such intelligence. Then there is Creus, that's C-R-I-U-S. About him we also know very little. The name means ram or male sheep, but besides that there is no information available about his role in Greek mythology. This lack of information about Creus and, and some of the other titans named in Hesiod's writings suggests to some that Hesiod and others may have tried to compose a body of twelve titans as counterparts to the gods worshipped in his time, that is, the more well-known pantheon of the twelve Olympian gods led by Zeus. 
In so doing, he may have simply lifted these names for poetic purposes. Perhaps there never was a body of twelve titans worshipped by early Greeks or Mycenaeans. Until we find more texts or decipher more tablets, we will never really know. Anyway, in the text as we have it, there follows in the Titan family Hyperion, who was apparently either the sun itself or an early sun god, if that difference even means anything. Then there is Thea, goddess of sight or vision. She is paired with Hyperion, and like many other Titans, she is primarily remembered for the divine children she bore, rather than any particular deed of her own. And Gepetus, about whom we also know very little, except that he was considered to be distantly the ancestor of all mankind, as well as a number of later gods, there is an interesting theme in the literature of antiquity which promotes the idea that identifies Gepetus, the Titan, with the biblical son of Noah, Japheth, and furthermore identifies him as the father of the Indo-European speaking peoples, but let me shy away from another digression for the moment. Among the Twelve Titans, there is also Themis, associated with justice and often and familiar, familiarly depicted holding balancing scales. She is also associated with the Oracle at Delphi, and a future episode will have much to say about that. Next, I will try to say Nemosyne. It's spelled M-N-E-M-O-S-Y-N-E. She is remembered as the goddess of memory, and like many other Titans, she is remembered for her children. She's also remembered in the phrase pneumonics, having to do with memory. In this case, she was the mother of the nine muses. We'll talk about them as well in a future episode. Now I come to the last pair of the Twelve Titans and perhaps the most easily remembered. First, there is Rhea, R-H-E-A. She is primarily remembered as an ancient goddess of motherhood and for having given birth to six of the later Olympian gods, among them Zeus. Her consort in all this was her brother and fellow Titan, Cronus. And with Cronus, the story now gets interesting. Now, the Titans were not the only children of the union of Gaia and Uranus. The pairing of Earth and Sky also brought forth the Cyclops, and about them I probably do not need to do much explaining. They were one-eyed prehistoric giants. Odysseus will encounter such a creature, perhaps one of their progeny, during his journeys and travails after the Trojan War. Lesser known, perhaps, are the Hundred-Handed Ones, three brothers who each have 50 heads and 100 arms. More difficult to imagine than their appearance, perhaps, is the sequence of events described in the Theogony, though the theme will be persistent in Greek literature and will continue down into modern times, especially in psychology. For some reason, these Hundred-Handed Brothers hated their father Uranus, and the hatred is returned in kind. In fact, though the hundred-handed ones are depicted so clearly in the Theogony, Hesiod also states that Uranus did not actually allow them to be completely born. Perhaps sensing their innate hatred for him from the start, he would shove each of them back inside their mother before they could emerge completely at birth. Eventually, these creatures will be released, but confined deep underground much later by Cronus. Now, We have seen conflict between the gods in our previous study of ancient religions, and we have seen successions of gods as well, with Anu of the Sumerians giving way in terms of primacy to Enlil and then Marduk. And with the Egyptians, there were numerous transitions from focus on one god to another, such as Sobek, Ra, Aten, and Horus. Theories abound as to the significance of these tales about the Titans, One popular theory previously was that the Titans were the gods of the people living in Greece before the Indo-European-speaking Proto-Greeks arrived, and that the story of the overthrow of the old gods was an attempt to explain the origins of the new gods that they brought with them into the peninsula. However, it has since been discovered that the stories told by Hesiod may have been borrowed long before this time from the Near East. The Hittites, living in Anatolia centuries before Hesiod wrote his account, also told stories of former gods, earlier generations of gods who had been replaced and banished by a contemporarily accepted pantheon. In fact, the Hittites used the Sumerian name Anu for the sky god who was castrated by a god who sounds similar to Cronus, who is in turn deposed just as Cronus was deposed by Zeus. The critical theme that emerges here, whatever its origin, is a war between fathers and sons, between, between generations, and this concept will re-emerge more than once in Western history. 
perhaps most recently, knowingly or not, in the psychology of Sigmund Freud in the 20th century. In this ancient Greek tale, Gaia suffers from the pressure of these children rammed back inside her, and she plots with her existing children, specifically the Titans, to overthrow Uranus. And she is not satisfied just with removing her husband and her son from power. She wants him castrated. Cronus accepts the sickle given him by Gaia and does the deed. He castrates his father Uranus and takes his place as ruler of the world. The blood shed by this act fell to earth, to Gaia, where innumerable giants and furies and nymphs were thus born. The testicles thrown into the sea produced the goddess Aphrodite, but more about her later. Now, I cannot find the issue addressed anywhere, but personally, this tale makes me curious about the overall Greek perception of Uranus. He is the ancient god of the sky, but also the sky personified. Yet, he is remembered as an apparently evil figure, a suppressor, a domineering, abusive father and husband. How did they reconcile all this with the beauty of the sky, the starry night, the waxing and waning moon, the glory of the sun? It adds to the alienness of the ancient Greek mind, perhaps, this ability to grasp apparent opposites, and it becomes just another element of mystery, which we must simply accept about them. Anyway, as queen, Cronus takes to, his, to wife his sister Rhea, already mentioned. Cronus is remembered as a god of harvest, primarily. Note that his weapon against his father is the sickle, used primarily not for purposes of castration, but for harvesting crops such as wheat and barley. Cronus is also remembered as father time, hence we have the term chronological, probably because the changing seasons were among the earliest ways of marking the passage of time. A period of time follows the assault on Uranus and the rise of Cronus, which is remembered as the Golden Age, according to Hesiod in another of his books titled Works and Days, a time in which there was no need for laws because all were naturally good. However, as Hesiod would lament, the Golden Age would come to an end, as would the rule of the Titans. In fact, Cronus's power would be usurped in a similar fashion, as he, like his father, became mistrustful and resentful of his offspring. Cronus's parents, Gaia and Uranus, warned him that he would suffer the rebellion of his children and lose his proverbial throne to one of them. So he began to eat them. Now, the foregoing procession of the gods, chaotic and zanily incestual as it may seem, is actually a cleaned-up version of various existing stories. Yes, the semi-organized and linear track given in school books, which leads from Chaos to Gaia to Uranus to Cronus to Zeus and his brethren, is really something composed by later interpreters. It is not the mythos of ancient Greece as lived by the Greeks themselves. The truth is that there were numerous genealogies in existence in different parts of Greece, that there were various explanations of the gods, and there were probably a variety of stories about them and their origins. For example, Cronus and the other titans are said, in certain sources, to possibly be the children of Oceanos and Tethys, thus putting an additional generational space between the titans and Mother Earth and Father Sky. And the coalition of 12 titans is also unlikely to have been any sort of dogmatic lineup. In fact, we know of several other entities or divine beings in Greek myth who would definitely qualify as titans, that is, the deities that existed before Zeus and his pantheon. Cronus and Rhea were not the only titans to have had children either. Take, for instance, Atlas, who was the son of Gepetus the Titan. Leto was another of the titan generation with whom Zeus would conceive both Apollo and Artemis. And Helios was another early sun god, often depicted driving a chariot that hauled the sun through the sky. And there is Prometheus, the god of forethought and the benefactor of the human race, who taught early man how to use fire and to develop civilization. So there really is not a clear-cut line between gods and titans. The name Titan is given to these beings by their outraged father, Uranus, who accuses them of having stretched or strained things. This is Hesiod's explanation of the etymology of the name, because the ancient Greek word for straining or stretching was similar to the name Titanes, which was the Greek pronunciation of their name. 
And this interpretation may be trying to say that the Titans overreached, that they went beyond what was appropriate. Perhaps there is foreshadowing in their very names, a hint of doom, because they went beyond the bounds of righteousness and sealed their own fate. Now, in Greek myth, when we speak of Titans, we merely mean that generation of deities that preceded the classic pantheon of gods, to which we will come in a little while. But even that line drawn through the celestial family tree is not terribly helpful, as we can see that the one version of Aphrodite's origins given here would clearly make her out to be a Titan, born from the gory mess of Uranus's testicles and seawater, and not descended from Zeus or his brethren. Yet Aphrodite is one of the twelve Olympian gods. Indeed, chaos rules in Greek mythology. And the theogony of Hesiod is anything but a direct, linear, clear recounting of the procession of the gods. As with a lot of ancient literature, there is much rambling, many digressions, kind of like this podcast sometimes. Just wait until we get to the histories of Herodotus, which sets out to tell the story of the Persian War, but spends the first few books ruminating on things like linguistics and the general history of surrounding kingdoms, and gives an entire volume to the history of Egypt, which didn't even really play a role in the Persian War. All that said, Hesiod does eventually get around to telling the story of how Cronus lost power to Zeus. Before he does that, though, he spends page after page telling a lot of memorable stories about some of the Titans. Some are given just a few lines, others much more space in the text. Some appear in Hesiod's text only, but some of the mentioned titans will play important roles as the mythology develops, and they will appear in other stories that we know from Greek myth. Let me tell you a little bit about some of these titans before we move on, using the Theogony and some other sources as references. First, there are gods or titans or what have you for all aspects of life sleep, death, fear, love, old age, hardship, deception, and so on. It is hard to tell if these are the concepts themselves or if they are gods who rule over or inflict those things upon humans. The three fates are also named here in the Theogony, and they are named Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos. They meet out the portion of good and evil in everyone's life using a celestial loom which produces the thread that symbolizes the span of a man or a woman's life. The thread is spooled out and cut at birth, and their decision cannot be altered, not even by Zeus. References are also made in these lines to great heroes and their stories, but these are only referenced and not told in depth for the most part. Perseus, Bellerophon, and Heracles appear, and mentions are made of some of their adventures. I plan on speaking of those adventures in depth in the next and following episodes. Now, glancing remarks are made about scores of different gods and deities. Most of the names for our purposes are easily forgotten. But here and there, some names appear that catch our attention. For instance, the Theogony mentions the three Gorgons, one of them named Medusa, and unlucky was she because she was mortal and Perseus cut off her head. Later, the story names Geryon, a three-headed monster killed by Heracles. And then there is a strange nymph, half-woman, half-snake, named Echidna, and that's E-C-H-I-D-N-A. Echidna gives birth to a number of monsters, among them Cerberus, a 50-headed dog, and the Hydra of Lerna, with whom Heracles would also battle, and the Sphinx that would trouble the Cadmians, and so on, whom Oedipus would confront one day. Today, we envision Cerberus as having only three heads, but again, the sources for Greek myths are multiple and contradictory. Late in the listing of gods and monsters, Hesiod makes mention of one Hecate, and he devotes quite a long passage to her. I have to say that in researching Greek mythology, I found the emphasis on this goddess to be surprising. In school, I had been taught about Greek myth with a very textbook, easily digested content, which emphasized a neat group of 12 or so gods, the classic pantheon gathered around Zeus, each with their own specific domain in life, which overlapped very little with the domains of the other gods. And outside that group, there were just fringe elements that received very little attention. Thus, an idea was created that Greeks focused their spiritual attention on the central pantheon only, and that the other myriad deities were just after afterthoughts almost. But nothing could be further from the truth. Hesiod's entire theogony only consists of roughly 1,000 lines of poetry. About 50 lines, or 5% of the whole poem, are dedicated just to describing Hecate and her background. That's a huge amount when you read this work and realize that some gods, 
whom you might deem central to Greek myth, receive just a bare mention in all that text. Hecate, according to Hesiod, is a descendant of Titans, a grandchild of Phoebe and Coes, the previously mentioned primeval deities associated with intelligence and wisdom. The Greek poet remarks that Zeus was especially considerate with her, as opposed to the other Titans whom, as we shall soon see, he generally punished after the war between the Olympian gods and the Titans. But Hecate he rewarded. Hesiod even uses the word exalted in reference to Zeus's favor for her. Furthermore, Hesiod marks out areas of importance for Hecate in contemporary Greek life, and these areas are numerous. First, probably since Hesiod is Greek, he shares how important she is in battle, claiming that it is she who decides which army will have the victory. Now we find ourselves again wondering how this all fits in with Athena being a war goddess, as I will explain later, and Ares, one of her half-brothers, being a war god himself. To whom, exactly we might ask, did the Greeks look for, for, look to for aid in the time of war? The answer probably had a lot to do with regions and regionality. Hesiod, the writer of the Theogony, came from Boeotia. I hope I pronounced that correctly. This was a region of Greece to the north of the Peloponnesus, and it was also separate from Attica, the peninsula where Athens was located. In a future episode, I will get into the distinctions between these areas in Greece, geographically, culturally, and politically, but for the time being, let us simply understand that the worship of the gods differed in these areas, especially in pre-classical times. Hecate also, according to Hesiod, is valuable for athletes, and she counsels the judges who oversee competitions. More than in feats of manliness, the favor of Hecate is also sought by sailors, according to Hesiod, and she is even mentioned before Poseidon, named by his epithet the Earthshaker here, in the prayers of fishermen. And she is named before Hermes by farmers who pray for the fertility of their fields, for their flocks, and for their herds. Finally, Hesiod declares that Zeus has also made her the protector of children. Now, even more interesting than the usual amount of te- unusual amount of text given to Hecate in this very early document of Greek literature and myth is the later evolution of the goddess. Hesiod provides the earliest text about Hecate, but he is by far not the only writer to have mentioned her. She is a topic in many texts down through to the Christian age, and while people like me, starting out with a minimal knowledge about Greek myth, think of darkness, the moon, and witchcraft when we think of Hecate, she was actually much more than that. Prayers down through the ages will make mention of her first, before all others, especially in supplications and petitions. It is hard to reconcile this primacy of hers in prayer with what we also know about Zeus. When we read Homer later on, well, he was probably, possibly earlier than Hesiod, and then we'll read the classical Greeks of a later time, and for all of them, much more importance was given to Zeus. In the discussions of philosophy found in the dialogues of Plato, attention is given almost entirely to Zeus, who seems to make the other gods superfluous. By then, Greek thought is apparently already moving toward a sort of soft monotheism many centuries before Orthodox Christianity becomes the fundamental Greek religion. But here in the Theogony, and as we shall see in other religious traditions and in later times, Hecate held a very important place in the prayers of the common people. And apparently, over time, she would accumulate more and more responsibility, for the moon in particular. Later views of her, perhaps influenced by Christianity, focus on her association with darkness and the moon, but she was obviously functional in many more areas of spiritual life, almost resembling, perhaps, the Virgin Mary in the way that the Christians of the Orthodox or Catholic variety would seek her intercession in so many things when they pray both publicly and privately. The generation of the Titans would pass away, however, even though many of the deities associated with this group would linger on in later stories about the Olympian gods and the heroes associated with them. The passing of the Titans came about thus. Rhea was the sister and wife of Cronus, who had overthrown the sky god Uranus and assumed almighty power in his place. Rhea gave birth to six children from this union with Cronus. Their names are memorable to anyone familiar with Greek myth. Hestia and Demeter, Hera and Hades, and Poseidon and Zeus. Interestingly, 
in the list of these gods given midway through the Theogony, Poseidon is again only named through his epithet, the Earthshaker. So significant was the fear of earthquake, volcano, and tsunami among the ancient Greeks, apparently. However, upon the birth of each future Olympian god, Rhea's husband and brother, Cronus, would swallow them whole. You see, he had been warned by his parents, Gaia and Uranus, that he would suffer a fate similar to his father's, and that he would be removed from power by one of his children. So, to avoid this fate, he ate the children as they were born. As the history and myth and literature of Greece unfold during this podcast, keep an eye out for similar themes, not just that of parents and children pitted against one another, but for that theme in which someone tries to avoid a certain predicted fate, only to unwittingly serve themselves up to it. The very Greek idea here is that fate cannot be averted. Once declared, prophecies have a way of turning out true, no matter how hard one tries to avoid their proclamations. The Titaness Rhea, though she obligingly kept providing children for Cronus to eat, finally became weary of the situation. She went to her parents, the same Gaia and Uranus, for aid and counsel. They guided her to the island of Crete, where she gave birth to Zeus, and where Earth took him deep down into secret caves, a sort of underworld descent which we will see many heroes make throughout all mythologies. And to Cronus, Rhea delivered a rock, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and the great titan swallowed it, thinking it was his son. Now, I digress a moment here to once again try to reconcile the differing images of Cronus as I did with Uranus. Cronus is definitely depicted heroically in the myth about his overcoming of his father, and he is also heralded as the titan who oversaw a golden age on earth, a time in which all were naturally good so that laws were unnecessary, Simultaneously, there exists this tradition, which depicts him as truly monstrous, an oppressive father who consumes his children rather than allow them to flourish, and who is brutishly stupid enough to swallow a rock and think that it was a baby. Yet, perhaps we should be less mystified about this apparent contradiction when we look at the prevailing mythos of Western culture today, that of Christianity. How many times have people pointed out the apparent discrepancy between the God of the Old Testament and that of the New? drawn a line between the penchant for slaughter in the book of Joshua and the mystic mercy of the Gospels. Perhaps the ancient Greek would find our beliefs just as hard to reconcile. So Cronus swallowed the rock and went about his way. Meanwhile, Zeus grew in wisdom and power, hiding in the depths of the earth. Eventually, he reached full strength. About this time, Cronus vomited up the stone that he had eaten. According to the Theogony, Zeus took this stone and planted it at the site that would someday house the Oracle of Delphi. More about this in a future episode. Now, the Theogony digresses at this juncture, and we will not follow it. I will get into the works of Hesiod in detail in a future episode. Today, I'm only focusing on the mythological content of his writings. The Theogony is not clear on the matter, but somehow Zeus's brothers and sisters follow the vomited stone and escape from the stomach of Cronus, probably being vomited as well. They engage in a 10-year war with Cronus and the other Titans. This period is remembered as the Titanomachy. Elsewhere in the previous podcast series, I mentioned how an ancient composer of tales might have identified some period of seismological troubles, possibly associated with the explosion of the volcano at Thera in the 2nd millennium BC, as the source of this idea of a grand destructive war. The conflict only came to an end because Zeus heeded the advice of his grandmother Gaia and released the hundred-handed ones, the children of Gaia who had been long ago imprisoned deep underground. For long, they had been exiled to some unnamed, dark, subterranean place at the fringes of the world. Now, Zeus released them and asked for their assistance in the war, in the Titanomachy. They expressed gratitude for their release and gladly provided aid. The Theogony tells of the ensuing battle. Not only are the Titans surprised by the long-suppressed fury of the hundred-handed ones, but Zeus is also roused to a near madness of violence. The poem speaks of his thunderbolts. Out of the sky and off Olympus, he moved flashing his fires incessantly, and the thunderbolts, the crashing of them, and the blaze together came flying, one after the other from his ponderous hand and spinning whirls of inhuman flame, and with it the earth, the giver of life, cried aloud as she burned, and the vast force and the fire screamed as well. 
All earth was boiling with it. There is more description of the damage. The conflagration crushed chaos, to quote Hesiod again, and it seemed as if the earth and the heavens had collided. So great was the sound of this clash between the gods and the titans. Again, this passage leads some to think that it was inspired by the explosion of the volcano at Thera, which may have attributed, may have been attributed to this divine war. In the end, the titans are driven deep underground, very deep, to Tartarus, to the utmost depth of the earth, where, according to the poem, night and day meet briefly as they transit the world. They are sealed in this place and encircled by walls of bronze. That detail, the bronze walls, is very telling. If the origin of this tale was from a later time, during perhaps the first millennium BC, for example, then the composer of the tale might have said that the walls were made of iron, since bronze had fallen away as a primary material for items and structures that needed to be strong, and iron had become the go-to resource for weaponry and defense. But this is a Bronze Age tale, so even the gods use bronze in crafting a prison. Here also, it is briefly re related, Atlas the Titan stands holding the world upon his shoulders, and not far away, Hades and Persephone rule the darkness and the dead, though their story is not yet told here in this text. We will come to Persephone's tale in the next episode. Not all of the Titans are housed here forever. Clearly, some are permitted to remain in the world and carry out their functions. Helios continues to haul the sun through the sky every day with his chariot, and numerous female Titans clearly remain free because, as we shall see in the next episode, Zeus will pursue them lustfully and sire numerous divine children upon them. In fact, Besides Cronus, it is not clear exactly who is imprisoned in Tartarus. In Book 8 of the Iliad, Homer names Japetus as one of the imprisoned, so according to one tradition anyway, there are at least two prisoners in that underworld. But clearly, Oceanus, the world-encircling river, is still free. And while Atlas is punished and forced to sustain the weight of the world on his shoulders, neither Hesiod nor any other early source directly says that this is a punishment for taking the wrong side in the Titan War. Prometheus and others also obviously remain free, and Prometheus's later punishment, being chained to a rocky cliff and having his liver eaten out by an eagle every day, this punishment is for giving fire to man and has nothing to do with the war. There are later traditions, found in poems from the classical era, which say or suggest that various titans were released from Tartarus. The poet Pindar, in the 5th century BC, at least a few centuries after Hesiod, even writes of Cronus being released in order to go and rule the Blessed Isles, where Greek heroes go after they die. Again, the subject of the afterlife in Greek myth will be discussed in the next podcast. Regardless of the extent and duration of the Titans' punishment, this is the end of the Titans as far as their influence in the world, and this is the end of an era in Greek myth. The Titans, however, will be referenced off and on again throughout our study of Greek history and culture, well into the Classical Age. I couldn't make a podcast of any length that would do justice to the topic of Greek mythology. So in some sense, shoving it all into one episode or spreading it out over 10 episodes will accomplish the same thing. Nevertheless, I have decided to divide the stories of Greek myth into two episodes at least. In this episode, I'm going to limit myself to the stories of the Titans and to the mere descriptions of the Olympian gods, which follows in this segment. There are, however, endless stories and tra traditions about these Olympian gods and about the heroes, divine, semi-divine, and human of Greek mythology. I will save those for the next episode. So let's finish this episode with the concept of the 12 Olympians. Again, the number 12 appears as it did with the Titans, and again, there is a certain amount of unreliability to this number. But effort is always made to either fill out this number of 12 gods or to reduce a larger number of gods to this apparently sacred quantity. And this is reflected not only in texts, but in archaeology. Different texts and different sites uncovered around Greece, both from classical and pre-classical times, displayed different cults of the 12-god pantheon. The identities of the 12 change, but their numbers almost always come out to 12. In some cases, certain titans fill out the number, or the nine graces, more on them in the next episode, are sometimes included as a single deity, or focus of worship anyway. 
It is interesting to note that this desire to fill the number 12 in, a, in another culture important to our Western traditions. In the Bible, you probably know that there are supposed to be 12 tribes of Israel. Interestingly, the list of the 12 tribes doesn't always stay the same. In some Old Testament lists, the tribe of Simeon disappears, the number being fulfilled by considering the two half-tribes of Joseph, as considering them as individual tribes. And there are 12 apostles named in the Gospels, but they are not the same in each Gospel list. Later, in the book of Revelations, in the New Testament, another list of the tribes of Israel is produced, and this time it is the tribe of Dan that is removed to keep the number at 12. Just so with the Greeks. The true number of Olympians or gods central to their mythology and cultic life is actually a little more than 12, but efforts are always made to reduce the core to 12. For example, Hades is typically discounted from the 12, since he is not in the underworld and not at Olympus. Since he's in the underworld, that is, not at Olympus, even though he is one of the original six children of Cronus. Sometimes Hestia, another of the six originals, is excluded in favor of someone else. But anyway, to help us understand the numerous references that we made later in the works of Hesiod, Homer, and a multitude of other Greek writers, let me proceed with a brief description of the Olympian gods. I'm going to depart from the text of the Theogony now and rely on the entire corpus of Greek mythology to simply describe and summarize these gods before we continue on to the next episode. Now, I will describe the origin of each god, that is, his or her ancestry, as well as the domain over which each one is responsible. The first six of whom I describe will all be children of the pairing of Cronus and Rhea. Those that come after are mostly children of the first six gods. First of all is Zeus. He is the chief god, and that entails a few things which I will address in a moment. We already know his ancestry, youngest son of the titans Cronus and Rhea. In the grand scheme of things, he is the sky god and the storm god. His weapon is the lightning bolt. He is often represented by an eagle. Ancient Greeks often interpreted the flights of birds, particularly eagles, as a sign of Zeus's will or his disfavor. As chief of the gods, he is also naturally the judge of things, the final arbiter of justice. And as with many of these other primary Olympians, there, though there are, there are lesser gods associated with each of these functions, for instance, there are already gods of justice, gods of rain, and so on, realms over which Zeus presumably holds power but Zeus is the highest god over such matters. Things may have been different in the earliest form of Greek religion. Perhaps Zeus was not quite so powerful, but by the time of the Homeric poems during the Greek Dark Ages that followed the Bronze Age collapse, Zeus was so powerful that he made all the other gods quiver. He may allow them their adventures and their mischief from time to time, but when he lays down the law, all understand that they must obey or suffer his wrath and even the earth-shaker Poseidon will not directly confront him. A final note about Zeus. We should not omit his well-remembered infidelities. The chief god, like many powerful men in real life, could not limit himself to one woman, and the next episode will cover, cover some of his more important sexual conquests. Next in line is Hera. Hera is Zeus's sister and wife. Thus, she is queen of heaven, she is also the goddess of motherhood, of family, of marriage, and fertility, though not endowed with the lustier aspects of the usual fertility goddess. That is apportioned to another Olympian, Aphrodite. Hera is often remembered in myth as a vengeful, nagging woman who irritates Zeus, especially with regard to his many strayings from her bed. Next in the lineup is the earth shaker himself, Poseidon. He is also a storm god, since he is lord of the sea, and so many storms come from the sea. He wields the trident and is known for being a temperamental god. It seems natural to us that one of his symbols should be the dolphin. However, he is also represented by the bull. This is interesting because we often see chief gods in other pantheons of different mythologies represented by this symbol of virile strength. It makes me wonder if Poseidon was not the chief god of some more ancient culture in the area, such as the Minoans, who depended so heavily upon the sea for life and for defense. But Poseidon is also the god of earthquakes, so perhaps that is the underlying reason for his association with a creature so famously strong. The Greeks were certainly aware of the association between earthquakes, volcanic explosions, and the much-feared tsunamis that often accompanied these seismic events. And they were often perceived as signs of Poseidon's wrath. After Poseidon, we remember Demeter, 
Sister of the others previously mentioned, she was the goddess of the harvest. She is therefore a fertility goddess, but strictly with respect to the fertility of the earth. Naturally, therefore, she is associated with the seasons, with grain, with farms, and so on. In a future episode, I will discuss the Eleusinian mysteries, her role in them, and their relevancy to Christianity. But now is not the time. Demeter is not paired with another male god, but she was Zeus's lover at least once and produced a daughter named Persephone. The story of this daughter will be told in the next episode. Her brother Poseidon also sired children on her. Next, there is Hades. He is not really an Olympian because he is the god of the underworld, of death. His name is also that name of the underworld, Hades, in some contexts. Later Greek tradition would supply him with an additional name, Pluton, or Pluto to the Romans. He became associated with wealth because the underworld, of course, produces gold and silver and gems. I will tell more about him and his wife Persephone in the next episode. Finally, of the first six, there is Hestia. She is sometimes included among the Olympians, sometimes not. She is the goddess of the hearth. This may sound very mundane, but you must consider the value of the hearth in primitive homes. It was central to the home, since nearly every home, in every home, even in the royal megarons where the king dwelled, each of these homes held a fire in the middle in order to heat the area evenly. The fire heated the home, and it was where the meals were cooked. Before the Middle Ages, in all but the most noble homes, entire families, and sometimes groups of families, slept around that one central fire every night, rather than retire to non-existent bedrooms. So the hearth was a critical part of life. Strangely, Hestia seems somewhat neglected by the Greeks. However, among the Romans, who would name her Vesta, she would appear to be much more highly valued. But more on that in the Roman series. For the next set of gods, those who were by and large children of the six gods born to Cronus and Rhea, I should probably begin with Athena, especially considering her importance to Odysseus, who is such a central character in all of ancient Greek culture and history. Athena is remembered as the goddess, first of all, of wisdom. Her symbol is the owl. She was the child of Zeus and Metis, a descendant of the titans Oceanus and Tethys. Her birth, however, may have been the most unusual in all of Greek mythology. Zeus learned of a prophecy that a son born to Metis would usurp his throne just as he had usurped his father's throne. So he convinced Metis to turn herself into a fly, and then he swallowed her. Again, this is very reminiscent of the Cronus story where he swallowed his children or swallowed people to prevent a prophecy from coming true. It kind of works for Zeus. Metis was, however, already pregnant with her daughter, and Athena later sprang fully grown from Zeus's head. And that is how the story goes, anyway. Now, Athena is also a war goddess, and perhaps her prominence in this area explains why one of her brothers, Ares, also responsible for war, for war seems so unwarlike in surviving Greek myths. To Athena, and not to Ares, will Odysseus always look for aid in his struggles, both martial and otherwise. Speaking of Ares, he was the full son of Zeus and Hera. Ares was the god of war for the Greeks, but interestingly, the strictly Greek portrayals of him, such as in the Iliad and the Odyssey and other poems, do not show him in the kind of light that we might expect. He comes off as petulant and whining in some of his most important appearances, and he is on the losing side in the Trojan War. He is generally brutal and ham-fisted in his approach to all matters. Of the gods, only Aphrodite seems to find his company worthwhile. And it is not completely understood why the Greeks were so ambivalent at best about Ares. Athena seems to be much more respected as a war goddess in the long run. Among the Romans, whose version of Ares was known as Mars, we will see the war god portrayed in a much better light, with a much better portrayal of solid, warlike qualities and a greater respect for him overall. But in all the wars that follow in this podcast series about the Greeks, we will hear very little about Ares. Apollo is one of another pairing of gods, this time a brother and sister, both born from the union of Zeus and the Titaness Leto. Apollo was another god of the sun, but perhaps in a more philosophical sense, being a god of light and knowledge. But he is a multifaceted god, and this may also reflect different perceptions of him in different regions, or perhaps he is an amalgamation of various ancient gods from different regions. For example, he is also the god of archery, 
and is often pictured with a bow. And he is the god of prophecy and of poetry. He's also the god of medicine. Yet he is also shown to inflict plague on the Greek army during the Trojan War and the opening of the Iliad. Again, very Greek. Regardless, his remembrance among the ancient Greeks is overwhelmingly positive. He is often depicted as extremely charismatic and physically attractive. Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. She is also represented with the bow because she is also a goddess of archery. Like her brother, she may be beautiful, but hers is a colder beauty. She is remembered as a virgin huntress. Her strongest association is probably with the moon. Many ancient religions, including Christianity, seem to have a virgin goddess among their pantheon. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Paul is confronted by adherents of the goddess Artemis during a visit to Ephesus. Eventually, in the largest branches of Christianity, the Virgin Mary would come to take this role once played by Artemis and other goddesses in the Mediterranean area. Now, Hephaestus was the Greek god of the forge. He is a blacksmith, responsible for fashioning weapons and armor, but he's also a craftsman extraordinaire, an engineer and an inventor. Due to his association with the heat of the forge, perhaps, he is also the god of volcanoes. Mount Etna in Sicily, which was part of the greater Greek realm in antiquity, was and is a very active volcano. The ancient Greeks believed Etna to be the location of Hephaestus's forge. Now, depending on which tradition you read, Hephaestus is either the son of Zeus and Hera, or is a child of Hera with no father, having been born through Parthenogenesis. He is remembered more for a physical defect than he is for his accomplishments. Hephaestus was lame and is portrayed in mythical stories as limping around Olympus or in his workshop. Again, there is more than one explanation for his limp. One tradition declares that Zeus injured him when the young god tried to defend his mother Hera from his father, and another says that the lameness was congenital. Hephaestus was the husband of Aphrodite, and this was the source of more suffering for the lame god of blacksmiths. Aphrodite was the goddess of fertility and love, but really much more the goddess of sexual passion rather than procreation or family life like the goddess Hera was. In one tradition, she was born out of the messy mixture of the blood and testicles of Uranus when Cronus threw them into the sea. Per a different tradition, she was the daughter of Zeus and Dione, one of the children of the titan Oceanus. Given her domain in the ancient Greek mythos, it should hardly be surprising that she was not a faithful wife to Hephaestus. She had affairs with numerous gods and mortal men, and Ares was among her favorites. Hermes was a son of Zeus and a nymph. He was the messenger god, the one who made known the wishes of the high god Zeus to their fellow gods and to mortal men. Like many of the other gods, he acquired a number of ancillary domains over which he was responsible. More than just a messenger, he was also the god of travel and therefore of commerce as well. He was thought to guide the souls of the departed to the afterlife, and he was also a trickster and a god of thieves. Finally, there is Dionysius. His is an interesting profile. Dionysius was the god of wine and therefore the grapevine and vineyards. However, he was much more than just a god of drinking. According to different traditions, his ancestry varies. One states that he was the son of Zeus and a mortal woman. Others that he was the child of Zeus and Persephone. Alternately, he was descended from Demeter, the goddess of the harvest. This last possible relation is intriguing because Dionysius is also Greek mythology's dying and rising god, their god of resurrection. Remember from past episodes in the previous series that the Egyptians worshipped Osiris as a god who had been murdered and come back to life. This idea of repeated death and resurrection is closely tied to agriculture, a way of expressing the recognition of the wintry death of vegetation and the need for its springtime resurrection required to sustain life. Strangely, perhaps, Dionysius is also remembered for an order of female followers known as the Maenads. These women, besides having their own gynocentric rituals performed to express public and private worship of their god Dionysius, are also remembered for their bouts of madness, perhaps instigated by their rites or by substances used in their rites. According to these stories, these bouts of madness sometimes turned into murderous rampages. I will use a portion of a future episode to better describe Dionysius, his followers, and their role in ancient Greek religion. This will be an important facet of mythology to understand as we prepare the way for the ascendancy in Europe of the Christian religion, 
focused so fervently on the hope of resurrection. The following episode will explain, and to some extent summarize, many of the key stories that constitute Greek mythology. This episode has described the gods at minimal level. The next will show some of them, the ones most important to the Greek mind, in action. In that episode, I will also relate some, but not all, of the great heroic and tragic stories from Greek mythology. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.